0: Welcome my buddy to Crystal Kyle and friends. Today we're going to be talking to David Sirota about the absolutely monumentally horrific situation in East Palestine, Ohio, where uh, they were poisoned by toxic chemicals casually and everybody in the government's like,
1: Mm -hmm. yes, and the media as well also did that. I mean,
0: they're covering it, but it's just not nearly the hair on fire that it deserves. Well,
1: so they're covering it, but there was actually a Media Matters report that I did a monologue on that you guys could check out about how out of all the television news coverage, which was not sufficient to start with, 3% talked about the government corruption under the Obama, Trump, and Biden administrations that led to this derailment. They all covered it as just like an act of God, inevitable, Wow. you could do. The Sunday shows didn't even talk about it at all. Uh, MSNBC, they actually, of the cable news networks, they were the one that covered it the least because they feel like it looks bad for their team. Fox News now is out like basically, you know, saying this is about wokeism or something. They're trying to turn it into a culture war thing. The whole thing is a mess. And basically the only people who have really effectively dug into the root causes of this crisis to try to prevent it the next time are people like David Sirota, Lever News. They have done, in my opinion, the best journalism on this front. So that's why we're talking to David.
0: It's a big issue that, you know, the media, forget not discussing the root causes, which is they almost never do. They never talk about solutions, right? right? Like if they do a story, for example, like a good story on somebody not getting good healthcare or whatever, it's never like, and that's why we need Medicare for all. Yeah. You know what I mean?
1: Yes. Well, I mean, CNN, of the three cable news nets, CNN covered it the most because they covered it as like a sort of sensational, you know, human interest story. But again, it's treated like, oh, this just is a terrible thing that happened. And then there's no accountability for the current administration, for the past administrations, no suggestion of what we could do to prevent it in the future. Um, Fox News, during the the time period, they did one segment that mentioned corruption anywhere in it. Um, the MSNBC, same thing. One segment that mentioned corruption anywhere in it. And otherwise, it's just basically critics, uh, crickets. So 3% of overall news coverage, broadcast coverage of this even mentioned any of the regulations that help contribute to the devastation of this crash that's
0: so sad meanwhile
1: people are still being told they need to drink bottled water they have no confidence what they're being told from authorities is accurate they're still complaining of headaches nausea um you know uh red eyes blurry that sort of like they could still smell the chemicals in the air but they're being told that everything's fine you know nothing to see here don't worry about it and for good reason they're very uh skeptical of that didn't
0: they evacuate them and then like bring them right back in
1: very soon after they were
0: like all right guys yeah maybe evacuate and then it was like all right it's been seven minutes come back
1: Well, and now these chemicals have seeped into the groundwater, and um, there's a plume of these chemicals that are floating down the Ohio River, and that's why they're being told to drink bottled water. I mean, if I was in the surrounding area, which, by the way, guys, I used to live um, in East Liverpool, which is 15 miles south of East Palestine. It's in the same county, Columbiana County, and East Liverpool is right on the Ohio River. So this plume that they're talking about has made it to the Ohio River. That's literally where I used to live. I mean, if I was in those communities, I wouldn't feel comfortable drinking the water, would you?
0: Absolutely not. No, I said I would I would get the hell out of there the second I saw what unfolded. But, yeah. you know, it's and easier both- said than done. People have jobs. People have lives there. Yeah. You know, they might not have the money to go travel. Right. And where do we even travel to? How far do you have to go? What's actually the safe zone? It's like you don't know. You're just guessing. And this is part of the problem of, like, the institutional collapse where nobody trusts our institutions because, you know, there's a, a good reason not to trust our yeah. institutions. And then, like, the void is filled with what?
1: I'll tell you exactly what the void is filled with. It's filled with J.D. Vance going on Fox News and saying this is because like this is or Charlie Kirk saying it's a war on white people. Uh, Fox News host saying it's because of wokeism. J.D. Vance saying it's because they're more concerned about environmental racism than dealing with this. I mean, all of this. That's what the void gets f- filled with rather than anyone accurately and adequately explaining the reality of the corrupt system that led up to this point. And the last thing i you can obviously say is like driving me insane because I, I think partly, it, you know, especially touches a nerve because I did live in this area. And this is a region that has been so betrayed and abandoned by both political parties over decades. I mean, this is like epicenter of deindustrializations, steel mills shuttered, factories overseas, drug overdoses, opioid epidemic. I mean, this is ground zero for all of that. And you know, I, that's part of why this is just one more story that the media hasn't told accurately because there's it doesn't fit in a neat little partisan narrative or bubble uh, it doesn't, you know, Does it? it doesn't work with what they want to sell. It looks too bad for their team, whether you're Fox News or whether you're MSNBC. And so, yeah, they'll cover it as like, oh, it's a tragedy. Isn't this terrible? OK, hope it doesn't happen again, but we're not going to do anything about it.
0: And terrible. Well, speaking of tragedies, this is a much lower degree of tragedy. But nonetheless, uh, you wanted to show me this clip here of Don Lemon making a fool of himself.
1: Yes, indeed. So uh, as you guys know, I know you're very excited. Nikki Haley has announced for 2024. Um, and uh, one of so basically she has nothing to say about policy whatsoever. And there was a really embarrassing clip of her with Sean Hannity where he was like, so name one policy where you're different from Trump. And she couldn't do it.
0: Second she, time he asked her that question in like a two week span. And different show. She couldn't answer can't it either do it. time.
1: And she's like, she had this uh, line that she had memorized that was like, I'm wait, not going to kick saying? left. Forward. I'm not kicking sideways. I'm, I'm kicking, kicking forward. forward and
0: spinning in circles and right. doing the Macarena. Right. And he's
1: like, <laughs> no, but a, a, a policy, a name of policy. She's like kicking sideways. Uh, anyway, so very embarrassing. She's clearly not running on any policy. Instead, she has these canned lines about like, Very Pete Buttigieg ask, actually, we need a new generation and these old people are too old. That's the real problem, right? So um, Don Lemon decided that he would react to this uh, direction of the Nikki Haley campaign and did it in possibly the worst, the worst possible way he could. Take a listen.
2: This whole talk about age makes me uncomfortable. I think that I think it's the wrong road to go down. She says people, you know, politicians or something are not in their prime. Nikki Haley isn't in her prime. Sorry. When a woman is considered to be in her prime in her twenties and thirties, and maybe forties. What do you that's not acor- Wait, I, that's not according to me. Prime for what? I, it depends, on I mean, it's just like prime. If you look it up, it'll if you look, if you Google when is a woman in her prime, it'll say twenties, thirties, and forties. I don't necessarily. Forties. So oh, I got another. I'm not saying decade. I agree with that. So I think she has to be careful about saying that you know politicians aren't in their I think prime. I need they to need qualify.
1: To be, are you talking about prime for like childbearing or are you talking about prime for being president? shoot the Just what the
2: facts are. Google it. Everybody at home, when is a woman in her prime? It says twenties, thirties, and forties. And I'm just saying Nikki Haley should be careful about saying that politicians are not in their prime and they need to be in their prime when they serve because she wouldn't be in her prime according to Google, you know, Google, or whatever it is.
1: So that was awkward. What do you think of that, Kyle?
0: Um, Yeah, I mean, he's just not smart. You know what I mean? Like, he, he doesn't know how to distinguish between prime as in childbearing years versus prime politically. Like or he like doesn't...
1: intellectual capacity or worth to society.
0: Yeah. I mean, how old is Nikki Haley?
1: She's 51.
0: Yeah, 51. I mean, everybody who ran the last time was like 912. <laughs> You, how do you pick the one thing that you can't criticize Nikki Haley on? I know. That's the amazing part.
1: Right. Like, well, actually she's like old because she can't pop out babies anymore. I <laughs> mean that's basically and clearly his female co hosts hate his guts. And not the first time that it's come out that his I think female they were co-host. Shocked totally by his gut. stupidity, right? Yeah. Well, the funny thing is to me, he's trying to he's trying to run cover for Biden here, right? And be like, Yeah, the age is it's not a problem. And it is true that the whole new generation comments and like the idea that the only thing wrong with Trump is he's just too old. That's the problem or the problem or that the real problem with Biden is that he's too old. Although, you know, I mean, I think there's legitimate concerns about his ability to like perform the basic functions of the office. But if you're just saying we need a new generation and the problem is they're too old, but you have literally no political content to back that up, like that's an issue. But so he's trying in this very horrible way to run cover for Biden and instead ends up offending, like, the entire... Who watches CNN's morning show? It's mostly, like, middle-aged women. Like, you've just offended, like, your entire demographic that bothers to watch you in the morning to the extent that they do. And
0: prime in the context of politics is a very weird thing because, like, you're in your prime whenever you're in your prime. So, for example, a young law that guy Maxwell Frost or whatever his name is, who just got elected. He's Mm -hmm. in his 20s, I think, and he just got elected. And it's like... Okay, well, you know, you could argue this is your prime or whatever. By the time you're thirty, you're in your prime. Somebody who gets elected, you know, didn't Bernie first get elected in his like forties or something? It's like his prime is going to be later because prime is defined by like when you're quote unquote at your best, career wise. Right. Right. And so it's like it's a very it, it's a moving goalpost when it comes to politics right. in the way that, in the way that it's not with biological things
1: right and the way he kept insisting like women are in their prime in their 20s 30s maybe 40s and google will tell you these uh these like indisputable facts and they like, were like prime for what answer. like
0: prime for what and he's like just just your prime your bro. prime just your prime just and ask, stuff you know? Google. you know what i'm saying
1: it's your prime <laughs> so bad uh, the that morning show has crashed and burned so hard it's incredible they made a big fuss about like we're gonna We're going to bring in these new, you know, faces, although they weren't actually new. They were just anchors they already had on the network, but we're going to put them together. And um, they've gotten lower ratings than like the ratings went down from where they used to be. They were already low. And there have been all kinds of leaks about how Caitlin Collins and Don Lemon in particular, like, have clashed. She screamed at her. There's been on air, like obvious on air tension. So it's not going
0: well. well None of these people um, really honestly have the talent to be where they are. Uh, the thing about corporate media is that you're, it's an ivory tower. Like you are granted or gifted from the managers this position. It's not, you, you didn't earn your way through the ranks in some sort of a meritocracy where it's measurable. They're just guessing. The executives are just guessing. I don't know, this person maybe fits the bill. Try them out. Yeah. And so you're just granted an audience of at least like 300,000 people or whatever. It's just given to you. But if you didn't earn it, if you didn't get those eyeballs more organically, then you know you don't know what you're doing, and your skills aren't sharp. You right. know what I mean?
1: What they've said: these are internal CNN leaks, like people who were on that team. Which, by the way, they've already moved the original executive producer like off the team, which shows you that it's it's seen internally as being basically a failure. They say that what they're doing is very confused. They sort of tried to dip their toe in the water of traditional network. Morning television, you know, more like the Today Hello, Show. Hello, uh,
0: welcome to the thing, and we have the weather.
1: Right, right. Yeah, you know, let's that. let's do a fun, like cooking segment, yeah, yeah, and yeah. whatever. Which you know is uh, mo- a largely female audience, and um, sort of like Midwestern housewives, or like the classic idea of who's watching those kind of shows. So they wanted to put some of that in. But then they also wanted to keep their like hard news approach. And also you have three people who aren't well suited to I mean, they're especially not well suited to do any sort of like a Today Show type of thing. And so they aren't holding on to the audience that was there when they were like expecting this is just going to be a news show. They're losing those people, but they're not gaining the, you know, whatever more general Today Show type audience. So it's been a net loss and the whole thing's confused and the co-hosts don't like each other. Well, you
0: know, you know what the answer is, right? what Charles Barkley
1: yes correct you
0: know who else the answer is right Shaquille O'Neal John Stewart <laughs> those are the two best ideas they've had in forever
1: yeah the problem but it's is, not happening it's, it's not, not gonna happen one. no it's not I mean, happening John either Stewart one has a sweet deal Charles the best Barkley they got was Bill
0: Maher not caring in his overtime show <laughs> when he's trying to get out of there all right we got a question from the internet Bob says wrap it up come on okay let's right. go yeah that's Bill Maher in his overtime show.
1: and apparently I don't think that's been rating well either
0: really yeah well it's be- better than anything else you put on cnn at 11 30 at night at
1: least trump was trump was uh trashing bill maher for low writings but that could be i don't really know the facts i just know what what our former glorious leader is telling me <laughs> that's all i believe
0: all right guys so um i this came across my timeline the other day and i wanted to bring it up i find it hilarious and kind of sad if i'm being honest so um jordan peterson tweeted the following Hey there, Antifa clowns and masked cowards. A bit of a history. Fascist is from the Latin "fasces," which means bind together. Corporate government and media collusion is fascist by definition. Why then don't you protest the World Economic Forum? Answer, that's the fascism you adore. <laughs> and so um, friend of the show Vosh responded and said, Antifa has long proclaimed its allegiance to the World Economic Forum. This is true.
1: Right, right. Like,
0: I don't... Okay, so here's... And, and there was one other tweet I'll, I'll I'll mention now, and then we can discuss it a little bit. But somebody uh, tweeted the following. This is not Jordan. This is somebody who he responds to. Okay. It is the explicit goal of Marxism to destroy our existing society and replace it with a new one. That's why it feels like everything is falling apart wherever you find wokeness or progressivism. It's not incompetence. It's the des- uh, the destruction is deliberate. So that's a very, you know right-wing dude making standard right-wing point, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Lefty's evil, Marxism evil, whatever. Mm -hmm. Jordan quote tweets that and says, wrong, it's the explicit goal of Marxism to destroy society, period, full stop. I guess the reason why this stuck in my craw is because don't like, why don't you take people who have different views seriously? And even if you disagree with it, like disagree with it on grounds that are reasonable. Not like all my enemies are the epitome of evil and they're satanic and they want the world to implode and that's their goal. You know that's not their goal. You could even argue, hey, I think that's a consequence of the ideas you want to implement. But trying to look at it from their perspective, you would say, no, they think this is actually going to fix society and make society better and make society more just and make society more fair. You could say, here's why I think it won't work out like that. But that's obviously their perspective and what they want to do.
1: Right. It's just such a caricature, such a fake caricature, too. The World Economic Forum one really gets me, though, because
0: there's not a single lefty who likes World Economic Forum. Period. Oh, no.
1: and the—I mean, <laughs> what's hilarious to me too is I feel like Peterson and some other types like him, like they'll just generalize about the left and they'll mean liberals, they'll mean leftists, they'll mean the whole gamut, and they'll ascribe to everybody like the exact same views. So maybe you have some like. Corporate like Joe Manchin Kirsten cinema types that are cozy World Economic Forum. And they'll just be like, yeah, it's everybody on that side of the spectrum that loves the World Economic Forum. And then they've also, they've also, the the World Economic Forum conspiracy, we've talked about this before. Like it's out in plain sight. You have a bunch of billionaires and industry titans and bankers and like world leaders who get together and basically first of all, try to sort of whitewash their crimes and pretend like they care about anything with morality. And then behind the scenes, they're making deals about how they can continue to accumulate more wealth and more power. Okay. That's what's going on. It's very apparent. It's very out in the open, but there's this also this, um, attempt by the right to construct this alternative conspiracy where it's like, they're actually Marxist who want people to have nothing. I'm like, No, because then they don't make any money, right? Like that's the whole idea is for them to extract as much wealth and funnel as much wealth, plunder as much wealth into their own bank accounts. And like us all having nothing and buying nothing. That's that is not part of their plan here, guys.
0: Marxism is about social ownership of the means of production. (laughs) It's about social ownership of the means of production. Everybody in the room at Davos. That's the last thing they fucking want. Absolutely. Because they own the means of production. Right. So it's weird because they sort of invert the conspiracy. It's so funny. They're posturing like they're so against everybody at the World Economic Forum and they're so against everybody at Davos. Right. And they do posture like they are. But the fact of the matter is Davos is a status quo protection racket. Yeah. And the kind of policies they love are the kind of policies that Donald Trump implemented. Massive tax cuts for the rich, oh, they massive subsidies, globalization yep. where we outsource two hundred thousand jobs under Donald Trump because of his policies. Yep, and like a lot of these people support those policies, right? As they virtue signal, like, yeah, I am against Davos and Antifa is for World Economic Forum in Davos. <laughs> like, guys, I, okay, and you know what else drives me crazy? I am sure you've heard this before too about how like anti like the Democrats are working with Antifa or Antifa supports the Democrats. Ask literally any member of Antifa, and they'll be like, "We hate both parties.
1: Yes, we hate both parties." I also feel like that you know the Antifa thing it was like super hot on the right during the the George Floyd protests this is a way to be like you know it's violent thugs and all this stuff and there's this grand conspiracy and this enabled this helped to justify Trump's uh, almost military crackdown on the protests because you had this you know secret left wing violent mob that was coordinated across the country and I feel like the Antifa talking points have really fallen off you know, since that time. So I also feel like he's behind the curve in it's terms just, of the current right-wing cultural discourse. He's
0: with the Daily Wire now. And so when you're with the Daily Wire, you know what your job is. You know what you were hired for. Let me bash the left and bashed even Democrats and liberals 24 seven. Yeah. Doesn't it can make sense. It doesn't have to make sense. It's just throw mud against the wall and see what sticks. Look, here's my point. If you are not even engaging with your opponents at the level of digesting the Wikipedia article and then (laughs) reacting to it, it's like I have a real problem with that because you can't stand there like I'm the paragon of intellectual honesty. Right. Right. And, you know, hey, to his credit, when he talked to me face to face, it was much easier to Push back and sort of flesh it out and and you know there were good exchanges there right but when he's just like screaming into the void he's got this total caricature and total straw man of anybody on the left and it's beyond laughable
1: i also feel like i mean he says he says in his interviews plenty of things that i'm like oh my god but I do feel like his Twitter is the worst. Yeah, he's very unhinged on Twitter. Yeah. Simplistic, like black and white, just dumb, unnuanced perspective. His
0: big thing where... is climate change denial now, now. Yeah. By. He's really leaned into that. Whole yeah.
1: Thing. Well, I, I've seen him talk recently where, you know, he was even like laying out. This is the left view of the world. That, you know, I wouldn't say it was accurate or fair, but it was a lot more nuanced than just like they want to destroy society and they love the World Economic Forum. So it's just capable of more nuance. Yes. If
0: I can if I can engage with, you know, right wing ideology, various flavors of it in a way where I can actually repeat to them, this is what you believe. And now I'll react to it. Yeah, that's the way you got to do it. You can't do this goofy stuff where it's like, you're just the, you know, it reminds me of, reminds me of the thing that's been happening over the past two or three weeks, this renewal of the satanic panic right. from the 1980s, yeah where like, you know, they look at Sam Smith performing at the Grammys. Oh, you satanic. They look at Rihanna. Rihanna. Coleman, oh, she's, she's satanic. She's wearing
1: red. Oh my God. And you've heard
0: Michael Knowles and Benny Johnson, a lot of these people have flat out said like leftism is like satanism. And it's like, what are we even doing here? Right. Like, are you, do you realize that you're doing like a WWE version of politics? And they might, maybe I'm the sucker for taking everybody seriously at face value at their word, but maybe of, they realize like, I am doing a WWE type thing A lot of and I'm too. playing the role of the heel and I'm, you know what I'm saying? Cause yeah. none of this is honest engagement. None of it at all. And I can't imagine being in the audience and, and listening to these people and going like, yeah, that's my guy. That's my kind of commentary. Right. What an epic rant. Yeah. Because it's fuck. it's insulting to your intelligence, man. Even if you are on the right. This stuff is insulting to your intelligence.
1: I feel like when you're on the left, because we live in like a right wing nation, like in terms of the economic system, you don't have the luxury of just, you know, totally characterizing it or or caricaturing it and dismissing it in that same way. Whereas because socialism is a sort of like mushy concept that's been very effectively turned into a boogeyman and Marxism and all these things are just very esoteric and P- they they can turn it into whatever they want and then just dismiss it. They can turn it into and that's why they love the World Economic Forum yeah, and that's why it's Satan and just dismiss it's it. It's
0: all so dishonest. It's just so dishonest. Yeah. I mean, when you talk about Marxism, you could there is no like single definition, but you could talk about Marxism just in the sense that it's the critique of capitalism or points out the contradictions of capitalism. And regardless of what you think of Marx, there were plenty of critiques of capitalism that he made that were absolutely spot on and empirically provable. Yes, right, correct. Like when you talk about socialism people when people talk about socialism there's the term how they use it colloquially where they just mean like government stuff the police the fire department you know the whole spiel mm-hmm. social security and then there's other ways people talk about it where it's like worker-owned co-ops or it, it's you know uh, state-owned enterprises like matt Brunig, with like there's these are interesting amorphous detailed complicated complex terms and definitions and ideas She's like, they want us to destroy society. That's what it is.
1: Yeah, they want to destroy society. That's all. That's what it's all about. Stuff that's bad. That's that's as detailed as they're willing to get. Pathetic. All right, guys, excited to talk to David Sirota of The Lever. As I said, they've done the best uh, and some of the only, frankly, reporting around the train derailment in East Palestine that actually looks at how we got to this place and what we could do different in the future. Also holding our current Transportation Secretary, Pete Buttigieg's feet to the fire, which is much needed. Let's get to it. Joining us now is the man himself, David Sirota. Great to see you,
3: sir. Good to see you both.
1: Yeah, our pleasure. Um, We're just singing your praises, and I think uh, very much deservedly so, because Lever News has done the best and some of the only reporting On how exactly we ended up with this train derailment in Ohio, with it being as devastating as it ultimately is, and an attempt by uh, the Biden administration and Pete Buttigieg at the uh, Department of Transportation to pretend like, oh, there's nothing we could do about it. Like, we're just powerless here. So I'd first love for you to walk people through the chain of corrupt events, starting with the Obama administration that contributed to the derailment and, like I said, the devastation from the derailment
3: so the story that has been told or at least finally is starting to be told is the story of the uh, the fallout from the disaster uh, i think the story that is rarely told in situations like this is how did we get to this point what what policy changes happened to make this uh, the, the conditions exist for a disaster like this to happen and that's what this what the story that we've been reporting from the beginning has been So you have to rewind the tape about 10, 15 years. And 10 or 15 years ago, there was a series of um, train derailments, uh, and and specifically hazmat train derailments, oil trains and the like, uh, and one train derailment in New Jersey involving the same chemical uh, that is at issue in Ohio. Uh, And in the aftermath of that, the Obama administration, uh, under some pressure, uh, did the right thing in the sense of putting forward uh, a proposal... rule proposal at the Department of Transportation. To start, better regulating uh, trains that carry hazardous materials, uh, and so this is about 2013, 2014, uh, and the like. Uh, and the the proposed rule was everything from uh, disclosure requirements to state and local governments, so that they could know and their first responders could know what kinds of hazardous materials are moving through their areas. Disclosure, uh, tank fortification rules, how strong the tanks are that are carrying the hazardous materials, uh, speed rules uh, and, of course, uh, electronic braking rules. The idea was that trains that were classified as uh, high-hazard flammable trains, HHFTs, would be subjected to all these rules, including a mandate to put uh, in place better brakes to to slow trains in in a more effective way to prevent derailment. So that's about 2013, 2014 the national transportation safety board comes to the obama regulators and says hey listen these rules should apply broadly to trains carrying all sorts of hazardous materials in particular known as class 2 Hazardous flammable materials, uh, not just Class Three. These are technical terms. You know, class, you know. Th- there was a debate: should it, should these rules only apply to trains carrying uh, uh, oil and ethanol? And and the NTSB said no; it should be broad. Uh, the chemical industry then came to the obama administration saying no we we want <laughs> we want the rules to be narrow we we don't want to have to deal with all of these upgrades uh, for our stuff our uh, our non crude oil non ethanol but nonetheless dangerous chemicals and the Obama administration at that point sided with the chemical industry lobbyists, narrowing these rules so that they only largely apply to uh, very very large oil uh, Oil trains, uh, trains of twenty or more cars of of oil, so a narrowing there, giving the uh, chemical companies, giving sort of industry uh, a break. But the rule that passed did include a mandate for the trains that it covered to at least include those electronic brakes. Right now, the trains in America carrying freight are largely using Civil War era. Uh, air brakes. Uh, the rail industry itself has said uh, repeatedly that ECP brakes, as they're known, uh, are much better for safety and can can reduce accidents, uh, mitigate uh, derailments when they happen and the like. That's the rail industry itself. And the idea was, okay, so the rule was narrowed. That's not great. But at least the mandate will start compelling, forcing the industry to start uh, using this equipment in a much bigger way with the hope of, with the goal of making it industry standard. So that, that's at the end of the Obama administration. Mm-hmm. Then the American uh, Association of Railroads, which is the lobbying group for the railroads, sees that Donald Trump has won. Uh, they start pushing uh, Senate Republicans to champion the idea of repealing the brake mandate, even though the mandate again is only uh, now put on a limited number of trains, they want they don't want any of it. Mm-hmm. Which is, by the way, a, a side note, kind of kind of insane. In that, only a few years before that, the rail industry was saying ECP brakes are great. The moment the government was thinking about mandating it, that's when their lobbying uh, their lobbying apparatus went into action, uh, and they ultimately convinced Donald Trump uh, to use his executive authority to repeal the brake rule. So now the industry is under no mandates at all to use better brakes writ large. Fast forward now to uh, what happened in Ohio. Uh, We don't exactly know what caused uh, the the accident, but we can say this for sure. The train was not classified as a high hazard flammable train, which is mind blowing uh, when you see the pictures of fireballs and mushroom clouds and 100 foot flames. So State and local authorities were not given, uh, and this is confirmed by the governor of Ohio, uh, because of this classification, they were not given uh, advanced warning of what kind of chemicals were on this train. Uh, The the tank rules were not in in place. Uh, The ECP brake rules were uh, not in place, again, both for two reasons. One, the rule didn't cover the train generally, and two, Donald Trump had repealed that rule. So those are the decisions that have created, helped create the the kind of safety situation on the nation's rails in the lead up to this disaster. And these were decisions made by elected officials. And of course, the the last thing to say on on this story is that the Biden administration has made no attempt publicly uh, in terms of rulemaking, what we can see from the documents, no attempt to reinstate the break rule, no attempt to use executive authority to broaden the definition of what a high hazard flammable train is, uh, even though obviously under the under the law uh, and experts we've talked to, former regulators say that the Department of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg's department, has the authority to begin a new rulemaking process. That hasn't happened. What we do know has happened is that on the uh, Buttigieg Transportation Department's docket right now is a proposal to consider weakening brake testing rules, the the frequency with which train brakes need to be tested.
1: Wow. And and just one thing, uh, point of clarification, David, as you said, we don't know specifically what caused this crash, but I believe it was you all that um, quoted some experts as saying that it could having these more advanced braking systems in place could have mitigated the damage. And they described it, the train is like a slinky where the the energy from the back, you know, pushes the whole thing together. And then you have more cars ultimately derail when you don't have these more advanced braking systems that could prevent that sort of like slinky, crushed up effect, to use some very technical terms here.
3: Yes, a a former federal uh, uh, safety official said to us that would ECP breaks have made a difference in this uh, situation, he said, uh, yes, it was unequivocal. Uh, I, I think we don't. I mean, would it have derailed completely? I'm not sure. We know would it have made the derailment uh, 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 less bad? Uh, uh, it, it's hard to say in which ways. But that's what what they're saying. And look, that's what the industry has said in the past, right? I mean, that's what Norfolk Southern. Uh, Norfolk Southern touted ECP breaks before it started lobbying against uh, the mandate for ECP breaks. Now there are there are other parts of this too. I mean, I mean, the Wall Street Journal report that there was uh, a potential fire on the rail uh, miles beforehand. Uh, but there are That's no federal video, by requirements.
0: That's on video, by the way. That's on video. They yeah, have that on there video. Are yeah. no,
3: there are no requirements for Give workers on the train warning about that. Of course, there's the understaffing of the railways generally, where where the companies have been cutting staff uh, to jack up their profits. Workers have been warning this is going to reduce our ability to maintain the rails, uh, reduce our ability to to keep uh, the rails safe. So all of that is at play. It's really it's it's a it's a it's a horrible perfect storm. Uh, and I think it's really important to look at the the decisions that were made that create the conditions uh, for things like this. We we need to know that information to know who hasn't made decisions and what kinds of decisions can be made now moving forward to prevent this from happening in the future.
0: So are there other chemicals that are just as dangerous as these chemicals, if not more dangerous, that are also kind of wrongly put in this category of like, actually, this isn't all that toxic? Do you Do you know?
3: Look, we know uh, uh, for, for one thing, vinyl chloride, vinyl chloride uh, is a class two chemical. Uh, that's the, the class of chemical that the NTSB were want back in 2015, 2014, said to the Obama administration, this needs to be covered. And by the way, it wasn't just uh, the NTSB. There were uh, uh, regulators acknowledged that there were local communities that had written to the uh, regulators saying, we want all hazardous materials on all trains uh, to be covered by this rule. And they just said, it's not going to be part of the scope of this rule. So I think, you know, I I mean, and one thing that's kind of disturbing in reading some of these documents, you know, you see the regulators parsing words, trying to make a distinction between like a, uh, uh, what do they call a flammable chemical and a combustible chemical, right? Mm -hmm. Like there were, Combustible liquids on this Ohio train, but they weren't classified as flammable liquids. Right? This is the kind of nonsense that goes on in in lobbying uh, and in in regu- in rulemaking, uh, where these words become so parsed uh, that it's it's impossible to know what's really going on.
1: Well, and as you pointed out, we all saw the massive plumes of smoke and fireball, and the reason that they did this "quote unquote" controlled release. Was because they thought that these uh, that these chemicals could literally explode like a bomb, and we're supposed to think, oh, this is not it's not hazardous, not flammable. Don't don't need the extra safety right here.
0: To your knowledge, has anybody in the media made the distinction about this chemical? Had to, you know, have they said, hey, this is actually this should be put in this category, and it's not, or has like the mainstream media just been totally out to lunch on this? <laughs>
3: No, I think. Look, I think the the classifications. I think uh, you know, I'm not aiii I'm not obviously a chemist, but I think the the classifications matter for uh, the different pressures, the different environments, the different uh, ways they need to be handled uh, in in various technical settings. But I, I I think the at issue here is if you're going to say that a train is a high hazard flammable train, should it only be oil trains, or should we be honest and say, "Listen, uh, other things other than oil can blow up, uh, and we need to take that take that seriously." I I don't think in in the co- Look in the coverage of, of what's gone on. There's been very little coverage of the decisions that led to this situation. Uh, there's been very little coverage of um, the specific rulemaking that happened, and and I want to be clear. I think people, th- there has been some coverage focused in on Trump repealing the ECP break rule. And I think that obviously deserves a, a lot of scrutiny. That is, that, it, that to me, that's an illustration of how cavalier the government writ large has been when it comes to the government, uh, to, when it comes to the rail industry. They just, it's just like, we're, 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 we're going to repeal, an, uh, a, the, the ECP break rule is already limited. We're going to repeal it because the industry asks us to, you know, the industry says jump, we say how high. Uh, but I think you got to go back. Further as well, and understand this is a this is a set of decisions that span two administrations, really three administrations. Right? Obama uh, regulators uh, look kudos to them for at least saying we have to do do some kind of rule, but then uh, keeping the rule limited uh, in a way that appeased the chemical industry. Donald Trump immediately doing exactly what the rail industry wanted, uh, and then the Biden administration, uh, Pete Buttigieg, uh, not really doing anything at all when it comes to this stuff.
1: I want to get in a minute to more on the media coverage. Media Matters has an analysis with some specific numbers about how and how much they have covered this um, tragedy. But I also want to ask you about a little more about our friend, uh, Mayor Pete, now Secretary Pete. And I know probably people think that Bernie bros like us just have a hate boner for Pete. But he gives us plenty of reason <laughs> when he, he, you know, he's in this position as Secretary of Transportation, which he lobbied for. He was reportedly originally offered OMB, Director, of Office of Management and Budget. He didn't think that was high profile enough. Um, he wanted to be Secretary of Transportation presumably because he thought he could just fly around to a bunch of ribbon-cutting ceremonies and, you know, dole out infrastructure dollars, and this would be great for his political career. Well, it turns out this position is actually really important and actually can be extremely powerful. It's really important here with regards to this train derailment and what we're going to do going forward, and I want you to break down your reporting uh, with that regard in a moment. Really important with holding airlines to account for basically, like, defrauding their entire customer base, That's really important. Uh, We continue and certainly previously had major supply chain issues. Would have been great to have a uh, secretary of transportation who was really on top of that. And he's been asleep at the switch. The only thing he wants to do is like fly around and do his little infrastructure ribbon cutting ceremonies uh, and has this posture of of, like feigned helplessness that he just, you know, he doesn't have any real power, can't really do anything. And that has been on full display during this crisis, according to your reporting, David.
3: Absolutely. Look, I, I, look I, what you've seen from Pete Buttigieg in this is this idea, and we've heard it over and over again, and not, by the way, not just from him. You, you, this is kind of uh, part of the Democratic Party culture, frankly, which is something happens the government regulator, the official in charge is 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 asked questions about it. Why did you do this? Why haven't you done that? And the answer is always to pass the buck. Oh, it's over here. I didn't have authority. I can't do anything. I'm helpless. And what's, to me, what's bizarre about this is, is that, is that liberals, Democratic Party voters, they're, their analysis seems to change depending on who's in power right we're we're told every election year uh presidential election year if the republicans win they'll have unilateral power to do whatever they want whenever they want to anybody on anything then the minute the democrats win the line is the democratic president in the same office that we were just talking about in the election the democratic president the democratic office holder has no power to do anything at all for anyone at any time ever
1: That's such a great
3: point <laughs> right and 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 it can't be it's either one or the other. It can't be both. And in this situation, it's very obviously not that Pete Buttigieg doesn't have power. He absolutely does have power. Look, when it comes to the airlines, under federal law, the Secretary of Transportation is the sole regulator of the airline industry in the United States. I'll put it more clearly there's only one person in the United States of America who has the authority to regulate the airlines, and that is Pete Buttigieg. AGs do not have that power. Uh, 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 Consumers do not have that power through class action lawsuits because of federal preemption laws. So when AGs are begging Pete Buttigieg to put in consumer protection rules vis-a-vis the airlines, they are begging the one person who has all of the power. Uh, In the rail situation, Again, the Department of Transportation is the chief regulator of the nation's rail system. In this situation, what Buttigieg has tried to argue, first, he didn't say anything about the derailment. Uh, 10 days later, he sort of he said that he insinuated, he kind of suggested it, that he is, quote, constrained uh, by Congress when it comes to the break rule. Now, let's be clear. The Donald Trump repealing the break rule after a 2015 law uh, was put in place that allowed him to issue a cost benefit analysis to justify repealing that brake rule i would concede that it would be it's a more difficult road for a secretary of transportation to undo that but we do know that the associated press published A uh, extensive report showing that Trump's cost-benefit analysis was flawed, was basically nonsense. We do know that Democratic Senator Jeff Merkley asked for a new cost-benefit analysis. We do know that environmental groups asked the Department of Transportation to reissue a new cost-benefit analysis to reinstate Uh, That break rule. We do know that uh, Pete Buttigieg's agency has the rulemaking authority uh, to expand the definition of high hazard flammable trains, and we also know that Pete Buttigieg and his agency have not proposed doing any of that. Those are facts. You can argue that people are uh, people don't like Pete Buttigieg because of the 2020 or 2019 Democratic presidential primary. You can make all these arguments to distract. But that, the fact is, those are the actual facts. And the thing that ticks me off is, is that you're not going to get better regulation from these people uh, if you think your job as a liberal or a Democratic voter is to see a fireball and a mushroom cloud blow up over an American town, and you think your job is to defend the Secretary of Transportation from people demanding to know why he hasn't put in better regulations. We will not get better regulations if the Secretary of Transportation feels like after a disaster like this, he doesn't have to do anything because his partisan defenders are out there defending him from anyone demanding answers. you know I go back to the to to the halcyon days of the Bush administration. I'm <laughs> kidding there. of course I was not no fan of George Bush. but I still remember 18 years ago, 18 years ago, there was a person in a very important position of power who had no qualifications for the job, a disaster hit. And that FEMA director, there was so much anger at that FEMA director for bungling the response to Hurricane Katrina, that the FEMA director felt the need to resign. There was just so much pressure. And and that's the way a democracy is supposed to work. Uh, something happens. The person who's in charge gets scrutinized, gets criticized. There's accountability and things, presumably there's political pressure for things to get better, for different decisions to be made. We now live in a world where it feels like disaster, multiple disasters happen. And the person who's put in charge deploys or at least benefits from their partisan defenders saying there's nothing to see here, move along. And what's bad about that is that that, that creates no political uh, environment or dynamic for regulators, whether the current regulator or the future regulator, no dynamic for change. They yeah. they say, listen, things screw up. I don't have to do anything. I'm not going to pay any political price for that.
0: Yeah. yeah I, I mean, to quote Bernie about these sorts of people, They need to talk to 12 attorneys before they take a leak. That's how they think. They don't think of like, (laughs) let's act first. And then, you know, whatever the backlash is, it is. They're, oh, I can't do it. Oh, I got all these pressures from all over the place. I don't blame liberals and Democrats at all for blaming Trump. I don't blame them for even giving him like, honestly, maybe a lion's share. 55% of the blame, 60% of the blame. If that particular break rule, which he got rid of, maybe could have fixed it. But to your point, just be honest about Pete and about Biden and them not doing the stuff that they should have done to help prevent this just be honest about that and at the end of the day i don't even really care where we assign blame right now as long as we actually get Do the yeah get the exactly regulations changed right. to what they should be You could blame Carrot Top for all I care for the train derailment as long as we get the regulations that we need in order to keep everybody safe.
1: Yeah. Well, when you were talking, David, I was thinking back during the the Trump administration and liberals mocked him, rightfully so, for putting like Rick Perry in charge of the Department of Energy, right? right? And it's like, this guy's a moron. What does he know about this? You're replacing, I think, dude was like, you know, some sort of like physicist or whatever, like highly qualified previously in the Obama administration. You're putting Rick Perry in charge. I mean, Pete Buttigieg is the equivalent of that. The Department of Transportation its pure nepotism. He's there 100 percent because he did what needed to be done to get Joe Biden across the finish line. He had zero qualifications. And yet and Biden himself during the primary mm-hmm. mocked Pete for his Great lack ad. of experience Great ad. on infrastructure and transportation. Yep. And then he puts I mean, him in I charge. Wouldn't even of say, the I wouldn't
3: even say mo- I wouldn't even just say mocked. Ma- I mean I take that you you look at those those ads right now and frankly they're a very prescient warning.
0: Yeah, right?
3: they're, they're like a warning. They're, they're like he, Joe Biden went out to America and warned America what would happen if you put a, a person with no qualifications and Joe Biden was saying that, not not me. That a person with no or very limited qualifications in a position of national responsibility. And it goes back to 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 your point, Crystal, which is: Look, if you want to be on TV and you want to be the person spinning the State of the Union and being on all the chat shows, go White House press secretary. Like I, Pete Buttigieg might be a great White House press secretary. Don't go get take a CNN contributorship.
1: Yeah. Exactly. Great. Right.
3: Exactly. No, don't like, do that. I don't, don't want to cover it. Take a job with like real kind of administrative, uh, running a piece of the government kinds of responsibilities, right? And, and the transportation department. I know there's a. It's funny. There's this idea out there that well, you know, it's it's kind of like a low profile job. There haven't been uh, lots of high profile transportation secretaries, and it's like. Well, it, it, it's a, it's like a real job. It's like not just a show job. It's not, you know, an ambassadorship. Uh, it, it's not a trophy position, right? right. This is not, uh, you know, you, you're winning a medal. You've, you, you've won a spelling bee. This is like a, a very difficult job running the nation's infrastructure, uh, transportation infrastructure, yeah. right? And and it doesn't seem to me that Pete Buttigieg is all that interested in the job. And we really need a transportation secretary who is into doing the job.
1: I mean, there's so much irony here because he did lobby for this position. And, um, you know, it has turned out to be a really central and really critical position, sort of uniquely so, during the time post-COVID with the supply chain disruptions and all of these things that are going on. And uh, my friend Irony said to me, he was like, there's an alternative universe where the transportation secretary emerged during this time as a real hero, right? There was Mm -hmm. like, Mm -hmm. Pete wanted to be the big man. He wanted to have this face on the cameras. The universe was like, all right, buddy, here you go. How do you do with it? And the truth was he wasn't interested in actually rising to the occasion or doing the job. He just wanted the CNN contributorship and his face on camera. I didn't actually care about what he did with the position. And, you know, it's easy to shit on people. Um, but I think there's a real clear contrast between someone like Pete Buttigieg, who just came in as like nepotism, crony, doesn't actually care about the job, doesn't want to do the job. And someone like Lena Kahn. FTC chair or someone like Jennifer Abruzzo over at the National Labor Relations Board where they're serious about governing. They actually have things they want to do. They're figuring out how to use the power that they do have in these positions and at these agencies in order to accomplish those goals. And that is what actual governance really looks like.
3: That's a really good point. I mean, the contrast between other regulators and Pete Buttigieg Really shows what can be done. It shows the the the, the possible uh, versus the Department of Transportation. Uh, and, and I think you know the, the American Prospect had a great story uh, recently about how when it comes to the airlines, Pete Buttigieg has exactly the same. I think it's like word for word the same power to regulate the airlines uh, as the FTC has That's- the power to regulate for consumers. Point being. The contrast between Pete Buttigieg basically not regulating the airlines and Lena Khan using the the maximum amount of her power to regulate the economy on behalf of consumers and workers—that is uh, the the contrast there. And, and and I do think it goes back to why did he want this job in the first place? And and I think you go even deeper. Why would somebody like that be appointed to that job? Look, I I do think that at one level it's. Uh, Pete was an ally to Biden. Um, he was a a, a well-known person. Uh, Biden just essentially rewarded uh, him for that. But I also think if, if you come with the pedigree of a Pete Buttigieg, mm. uh, it's a way to appease uh, these very powerful industries. True. The pedigree being look, somebody who comes up in politics uh, uh, from being a McKinsey consultant uh, who comes up uh, uh, you know, doing wine cave fundraisers, who comes up on the kind of the corporate wing of the Democratic Party, is not somebody whose political formula is to push powerful people, powerful corporations around. That is just not the profile. The political formula is, I will make powerful people happy. So if you're an airline right now, if you're Norfolk Southern, if you're the rail industry, you're like, oh my God, it's so amazing. We're so lucky that we have Pete Buttigieg as Department of Transportation Secretary, a guy whose entire political formula is making powerful people like us happy, not making powerful people like us mad, not really cracking down on us. And and I would argue that what you need right now, so obviously, is a kind of the opposite profile of a Pete Buttigieg. You need to use the phrase. You need a real cop on the beat. You need somebody who's willing to to go after and crack down on powerful people. That's not what is atop the Department of Transportation.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, we saw warning signs, of course, with this. Ro Khanna and Bernie Sanders sent a letter to Pete, like, hey, here's exactly exactly what you should do to crack down on, on the airlines, yeah. to get them to fall in line. And he just ignored it. He ignored it completely. And I think the thing that drives me crazy here, to your point, is that this isn't ideological like the media might pretend every now and then that there's like an ideological political battle between the people who are in favor of more regulation and the people who are in favor of less regulation. And, well, there's arguments for both of that. More regulation equals more safety. But getting rid of regulations mean you get rid of the unnecessary red tape that holds industry back, mm-hmm. you know, but this actually this isn't an ideological battle at all. It's a battle between people who are honest about what needs to be done and the corrupt The people who are paid by industry because they want to squeeze every last penny of profit out of the system. I mean, we're talking about they want to have one person on these giant industrial trains. Why? For profit. That's why they want to do it. I think right now, in many instances, they have two. And that could also, by the way, be uh, one of the reasons why this happened, yeah. because the thing was sparking it on fire for 20 miles before it got into East Palestine. Lord only knows it maybe was sparking for 40 miles. We have a camera 20 miles, which is why we saw it. But if there were more people, maybe they could have saw that. They could have addressed it.
3: Right. I mean, it's a it's a one and a half mile long train with with uh, only a few people on it for <laughs> sure. And and I I just want to be clear I I don't think somebody like Pete Buttigieg is you know sitting in a in a dark smoke filled room twisting the mustaches and you know sort of scheming haha we're gonna like help the rail barons you know blow up a town I, it doesn't work like that it more it more works like this when the rail companies or the chemical companies or the other industry lobbyists come to his agency and say well you know uh, we don't really need ECP breaks. Our cost-benefit analysis says it's not worth the cost. It'll raise the price of goods. It'll slow the supply chain. It won't really stop any disasters. It's, it's whether the, the person in that job uh, ha- comes from a pedigree, comes from a, a kind of experience coming up the political system, listening to those arguments or challenging those arguments, right. being suspicious of what the powerful is saying, right? And and I think that's really how it works. It's not that I'm going to help the railroads blow up a town. It's more, well, look, the, the these very powerful, seemingly smart people in suits uh, said we should do this. They only need this. And and yeah, I'm getting some, I'm hearing the workers sort of say that's not, but like the, 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 the smart guys in the suits, they're telling me I can do this and I'll right. be fine. And why do I want to piss them off? Because if I piss them off, it's just going to create, it's, it's going to make things hard. And especially if I'm looking to running for president in, in a few years, do I really want to piss off powerful industries that are going to air super PAC ads against me and the like? Or do I want to like make them psyched about me so that when I run for president, their super PACs and their donations help me, right? right? That's how soft corruption really works.
1: That's exactly right. You know, that's Part exactly of the
0: system right. is just how it works. That's, that's, you know, that's how exactly. they tell them. That's how they that's convince exactly themselves. Right. yeah.
1: So David, I don't know if you know this. I used to live um, 15 miles south of East Palestine in East Liverpool, Ohio. Um, It's like right on the Ohio river there. It's right next to where Pennsylvania, Ohio and West Virginia all come together. And my politics really were formed while I was living in that area, because it has been so devastated over decades by deindustrialization, terrible trade deals, shipping jobs overseas. Now you have, it's an epicenter of the opioid epidemic crisis, drug overdoses. It has been neglected and abandoned over and over again by both parties. And as a result of that, Um, Because in part, the media has failed to adequately tell the story of why these areas have been decimated and who it has benefited. It is also the part of the country that has moved to the right, the furthest, the fastest. Mm -hmm. That congressional district is literally the one that in the Trump era has shifted to the right by the most points over the shortest period of time. This used to be a place, you know, it was union, labor, populist regularly, I mean, traditionally represented by Democrats. And then with the Tea Party wave, you end up with a a Republican, like hard right Tea Party guy. And now in the Trump era, forget it. I mean, it's just as Trumpy as it could possibly get. And while I've been watching this story with the train derailment play out and the media's coverage of it and lack of coverage of it, I've gotten a little bit of a reminder and a glimpse into exactly how something like that could happen. Because, Most of the media just ignored the part we're talking about, the bipartisan corruption, how we got here, what you could actually do. They just told it as like a sort of sensational human interest, like act of God thing. Eh, Throw our hands up. This is terrible, but there's nothing we can do about it. But now we have a narrative that is being formed on Fox News and in right-wing circles that is, um, you know, that is sort of powerful, at least for that audience. And this again, goes back to Pete. He made these comments at a forum about he was like complaining about how construction crews are too white. And at the same forum says nothing about the train derailment. So this gave Fox News an in to talk about this story And spin a narrative that doesn't require them to talk about corruption, doesn't require them to, you know, shit on the Trump administration and their deregulation and their bad rulemaking, et cetera. Oh, this train derailment is because of wokeism and because they're too focused. Charlie Kirk says it's a war on white people. Um, There's a Fox News host who said it was wokeism. J.D. Vance goes on with Tucker Carlson, who, by the way, J.D. Vance, who represents Ohio and is like, you know, supposedly cares about this region, didn't put on a statement for nine days But once Pete says this thing about white construction crews, now he's got his end. They're more focused on environmental racism and all these, quote unquote, made up concepts than they are actually regulating. And so there is no narrative on the other side about what actually happened with corruption and corporate greed and regulatory capture. And now you have this fully fleshed out narrative on this side about how actually it's because they're more focused on like diversity and racism and and wokeism than they are on dealing with the problem. So guess what? A narrative beats no narrative every single day of the week. And so when I've seen this unfolding, it's it was an aha moment. Like, this is what happened. This is why so many working class regions of the country shifted to the right, because we didn't, the media didn't want to tell the story about NAFTA and PNTR and the way people have been sold out. So when Trump comes along and is like, oh, it's the immigrants, got to build that wall, there's no other narrative to combat that that is sort of like, you know, present and available for people in the media.
3: Absolutely. Listen, I mean, the, the way to summarize that, I completely agree, is that if the Democrats don't make an economic argument, if the media does not cover the economic part of this, and I include corruption in the economic part, the money part, then the argument that the right will make is a culture argument. Uh, that's, that's, their, that's been their formula for for really for decades uh, on basically every issue, uh, and to go back to your point about this being a political opportunity uh, in a good sense for somebody in the job of, of of transportation secretary, this could be the part the point where a populist figure in that job uh, could take a stand and be a hero for the communities that were harmed there. Uh, a person who says. Now it is time to go after. In this case, the rail barons. Uh, It was a a, a, the airline meltdown was an opportunity for a different kind of political figure in the job of transportation secretary to say, "I'm going to make a real economic argument, the corporate power argument about big corporations abusing people." That there was a vacuum there. Those arguments basically weren't all that well made, if they were made uh, at all. Uh, So yes, when there is a vacuum. And the economic argument, the corporate power argument, is not being made. The right is more than happy to fill the vacuum with a culture argument, no matter how dishonest, no matter how kind of twisted, no matter how uh, skewed. Uh, they they can make a powerful a uh, culture argument. I don't, I don't want to be clear, just to to my haters who are listening here. I don't agree with the with the rights culture argument here right like I don't agree with the with 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 what JD Vance or Tucker Carlson are saying but I, I it's worth saying if 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 there's a vacuum that's left for those opportunists they are going to seize that opportunity with really ugly culture arguments that will gain traction in a vacuum
0: that's right Yeah, I, I okay I I think I disagree with both of you I just it's way too heavy handed I don't think the narrative is going to work. A a lot of this region actually flipped back to Biden because now we're onshoring 350,000 jobs. I mean, you can only go to the pool of wokeism and culture stuff so much, and they were over reliant on culture war stuff in the last election. I agree with you that the Democrats, for institutional reasons, are not bringing up nearly enough the root of the problem, the corruption, the lack of regulation, et cetera. I agree with all that, but- I think they're they're out over their skis on this one because on its face it's too absurd, like oh really, the trains have a war on white people. That just sounds ridiculous
3: look I'm not saying that the Republicans are going to win the argument quote unquote uh, fully. what i'm saying is is that certainly part of the shift. Writ large in the parts of the country we're talking about, uh, have been because the Democrats have not made a compelling econo- economic argument, uh, a compelling corruption argument, a compelling corporate power argument that has been enough and sh- a- a- and sharp enough uh, to defeat the 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 Republicans' culture war argument. I, I think now you've you've got sort of a mix of narratives in this particular situation, uh, but I think the bottom line is this that there should be a stronger economic corporate power and corruption analysis in all of these kinds of situations that that's really where the issue is and 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 I actually think that at least rhetorically the republicans are starting to figure that out right? I mean, you see in some of these comments from, I mean, Ted Cruz agreeing about uh, with Ilhan Omar about the need for better train regulation, some of J.D. Vance's comments about uh, the transportation department. They are at least rhetorically positioning themselves as not hostile to cracking down on big corporations that are harming the working class of this country. It should go, it should be said, of course, that, Oftentimes the Republicans will use that rhetoric and then not be serious about actually following through on policy. That's kind of their game as well. But I do think you're seeing more of a kind of anti-corporate power Uh, argument coming from Republicans because they see an opportunity. I don't know how they're going to navigate ultimately when people call them onto the carpet and say, listen, you've been saying you're going to take on big corporations and you never do. I don't know how they're actually going to navigate that on policy. Maybe they'll just bank on people not not noticing that they're not actually following through. But I certainly think the corporate power, corruption, uh, economic arguments that we're talking about here are up for grabs between the two parties. Uh, The Democrats don't Oftentimes, don't seem to want to grab the, those arguments. The Republicans are making more rhetorical advances towards those arguments, even though it puts them at odds with their donors, and they haven't actually followed through. To me, that that how that all plays out generally will decide a lot of the trajectory of the next era of American politics. And and just to go back to Crystal's point for a second, the Republicans are are kind of learning how to put their kind of nasty uh, uh, race arguments, uh, immigration arguments, uh, anti-environment arguments into these into these arguments about corporate power. You see that right now in the anti-ESG arguments that they're making. Oh, these, you know, wo- you know Wall Street is woke, uh, woke <laughs> bankers, right? Like, like you know, we're anti-Wall Street, but we're anti-woke Wall Street is like what the Republicans are saying. And so there's like a little piece of it that's like they're anti-Wall Street, but a lot of it is inflected with a kind of uh, anti-liberals, anti, you know, uh, anti, you know, a-, a kind of own the libs argument. Uh, and the Democrats are often flat-footed in, in, in the face of it because they're not putting forward as aggressive a, a, an economic argument. One last point on this. You're right, Kyle, that the Republicans didn't win the election when they bet on all of this. But I I believe part of that is because Uh, They they have kind of like a Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey circus problem. Like it's like a freak show problem. Like their party is just seems so insane (laughs) on so many things that I feel like people the Democrats are benefiting from from people being like, look, I'm not I I I may not love the Democrats, but I'm not going to vote for the for the Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey circus, right? And I think that if the Republicans can figure that out, it's almost like an like a like an aesthetic. they could quickly come back
0: i mean my only response to that my only response to that would uh, would be if you uh, had a vote on this exact issue exact issue i think ilhan omar who you referenced there would vote for the regulation i think think ted cruz wouldn't hesitate to vote against the regulation so i mean i just i just think they're liars and it's incumbent upon people like us to sort of point that out not necessarily just say oh they're doing this trick it might work it's like yeah maybe but that's you know part of our job is to be like here's why here's why they're total liars, and nobody should follow no, their
3: i want let me just agree really quickly. I totally agree if, it, if that's not clear, like they are total liars, like they're using this rhetoric. And usually what happens is they won't come out and say they're liars. They'll like water it down. I talk about this a lot. They turn a shall to a may, they turn a a must to a can in a, in a bill. They make all these little changes to make it look like they're doing something and they haven't actually done nothing. I mean, that is the specialty of the Republican party to pretend they're populist, but actually do, do nothing. They are total and complete liars. But I will say this, if the entire debate, the entire discourse is moving to normalize a criticism of corporate power, to normalize the idea that giant companies like Norfolk Southern should be better regulated. Overton window-wise, in terms of the discourse, that's a good thing, even if the Republicans are bullshit artists in in whether they will follow through or not. It's a good thing that we're at least, and that's what we do at at The Lever. I mean, we follow the money. Part of our goal is to change the discourse so that the discourse focuses on these issues that are important, uh, that focuses on the governmental decisions that were made, the corruption that happened. That needs to be part of the discourse. And as much as it is a responsibility, yes, to call out Republican bullshit, it's also a, a very difficult Job and a responsibility of all of us in independent media to try to focus the conversation on where it needs to be focused, which I know you guys do. I know we try to do, and we need a lot more people to try to do it as well. Yeah.
1: Well, that is why, you know, what you all are doing is so critical. It's never been more apparent than um, during this crisis. You all have done the best reporting and actual journalism about how we got here, who's to blame, what we can do moving forward, and calling on the carpet anyone who, you know, is pretending to be powerless or pretending that all this just came out of the blue and no one could have ever seen it and there was nothing we could do to prevent it. So, David, thank you so much. So great to see you. Thank you for spending some time with us today.
0: Thanks. Thanks to both of you. Yeah, a pleasure. All right. So that's David Sirota. Thoughts?
1: Um, I mean, my biggest thought is this story has been such an example of why it is critical. We have actual independent non-corporate news outlets, because the media coverage of this has been atrocious. Um, It has been dishonest. It has been incomplete. And so if you didn't have David at uh, Lever News and his colleagues there who have been doing phenomenal reporting, if you didn't have Jordan Sheridan on the ground from Status Quo, if you didn't have- He's
0: interviewing people from the area.
1: Yes, there on the ground, talking to them, talking to Aaron Brockovich, too, about what this means in previous environmental cover-ups and what people can expect- If you didn't have that, I mean, it's just a gigantic gaping hole where you should have actual information and understanding of this important situation.
0: The thing about this story that's amazing is, like you said, the media is gone. But the issue was actually like the issue came about because of everybody in the system. So Trump removed the safety standards. DeWine ordered uh, the chemical cars to be burned. DeWine declined federal assistance. DeWine said that uh, Norfolk Southern CEO gave him his word that all would be well. Um, the CEO <laughs> didn't show at the town hall. The CEO is a DeWine donor. Mayor Pete is the, the uh, Secretary of Transportation. Yes. And, you know, he he's directly in control of our transportation in this country, including rail. Obama had made it so there were these regulations But did it like late in his uh, time in office and then like scrapped it, right? Or or weakened it on his way out the door.
1: And Obama is the reason why this train, which turned into a gigantic fireball because of the quote unquote controlled release, which they had to do because they were worried it was going to explode like a bomb and like decimate the entire town. That was their fear. That's why they had to turn it into the giant fireball. Obama-era regs are the reason that this was not classified as a high-hazard flammable train. Right. And that would have come with additional safety regulations. So Obama administration's complicit— Trump administration's complicit. Biden administration keeps the lax rules from right. the Trump administration. Yep. Mm-hmm. And then they also side with the rail barons when they're screwing over their workers. Yep. And rail workers have been warning that things like this could very easily happen because of their direction of putting profits over people and over safety and over everything else. So every single administration is complicit. And the you corruption
0: know, is at the core of it because you have, the yeah, the the rail companies paying the politicians. I mean they literally and I learned this from David Sirota, Civil War era type breaks. Yes. It was sparking and on fire 20 miles before it got to East Palestine and blew up. There's video of it. Wow. And you know what? They also, guys, they want one person on these trains. Wow. They want one person on the trains. In uh, a lot of them now, there's two. There's just two. two. They want to get down to one because they're trying to squeeze every penny out of it like the greedy little piggy capitalists they are.
1: Yep. Multi-million dollar bonuses for executives, massive stock buybacks. $55 billion
0: dollar, uh, industry. 55000000000 right. billion.
1: Can't invest in safety, can't invest in their crew, can't invest in infrastructure, can't invest in a modern braking system. It's just disgusting.
0: How bad do you think this is going to be? For who? For, for East Palestine and whoever is see my, my biggest fear. Whoever's downwind of that chemical fire, wherever the bulk of that goes. I'm worried about the water, goes, too. Well, that's a huge I'm really thing, too. Worried about the so, water. how bad are we talking like, you know, eventually, hey, nobody should really be living in that zone? You know what I mean? Yeah. Are we talking like this whole region, sort of like a Chernobyl type event where it's like, now we drew a radius of 40 miles around in every direction and you can't. Like, just don't, don't be there. I don't
1: know about that. I think what we're more likely to see is, you know, media attention will fade away. It already is. And then, you know, 10 years from now, there'll be a little local news item about how there's there's all these unexplained cancers in the area.
0: Yeah, unexplained cancers. Yeah. Now, by the way, if, you're, if you live, let's say, in the Northeast, right? Don't be surprised if some of this gets to you as well, man. Because remember when there were the fires, like just raging wildfires in California? And then there was like a couple days or maybe a week here in the mid-Atlantic and in the Northeast where the sky was totally freakish looking. Remember we went and watched the sunset and you could look directly at the sun, which you're never able to do, but we were able to look directly at it. Why? Because of the massive smoke screen because of the California fires, which traveled all across the, the country and came here. You know you're going to be downwind of this in certain places in the Northeast as well, and so you know there's probably going to be a spike in cancer cases in certain places there as well. This is a, a an absolute ecological, environmental, health disaster, and nobody in the system's looking out for you. Nobody in the system. Yeah. There's no adult in the room who's like a leader who's like, yeah, we'll 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 fix this. There's their, none of that going on. Their whole goal
1: is just downplay, let, downplay, let, downplay. Exactly, and the politicians are largely taking their cues from the uh, corporation itself. The media is taking their cue from the politicians. And so, you know, the whole impetus is to downplay, to move on, to convince people nothing to see here.
0: It's evil. It's flat out evil. Yep. All right, guys. Uh, Thanks for listening. Sorry, it's a bit of a downer episode this week, but we got to give you the facts and the information that always comes first. Uh, If you like this show, do us a favor, subscribe on Substack. Five bucks a month gets you the video of every interview and it gets it to you a day early. You also get the newsletters. Um, Shout out to Piper for, you know, helping us with those brilliant newsletters. And yeah, remember, we don't take any uh, corporate money, any ad money. We don't do any ad reads. We do that on purpose. We want to keep the show pure, and we want to keep away any you know adverse influences on us. So you guys build the show from the bottom up. I want to thank you very much. Thank you to everybody who already is subscribed on Substack. We love you. We'll talk to you soon.